The America's Quarterly Podcast is sponsored by The Boeing Company. One area that's getting a lot of attention in Latin America these days is hydrogen, which is a key element in producing sustainable fuels. Boeing has spent recent years developing technology to increase the use of green hydrogen in fuel cells and in combustion engines on its airplanes, as the company pursues a goal of achieving net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Luisa Franco, in this week for Brian Winter. There's a new pink tide in Latin America. How does it compare to the previous cohort of leftist and left-leaning leaders from the 2000s? I think now there's a clear sense in countries like Chile and Colombia that the next years will be very, very difficult. I mean, uh, these are leaders, I think, who have a clear understanding of the need to come across as consensus builders, and otherwise they won't be able to follow up on their very ambitious proposals. With the recent inauguration of Gustavo Petro in Colombia, it's now official. We have a new pink tide in Latin America. That is, a wave of left-leaning presidents who in many ways recall the original pink tide of the 2000s. But it's also clear that this time, some things are different. Presidents like Petro and Gabriel Boric in Chile are more focused on climate change than their predecessors were, for example. At the same time, economic conditions today are not as good as they were in the 2000s, which could limit options for these new leaders. Today on the America's Quarterly podcast, we'll have a conversation with Oliver Stunkel. Oliver is a professor at Fundação Getúlio Vargas in São Paulo and a contributing columnist for America's Quarterly. We'll talk to Oliver about what he expects from this new wave of leaders what they mean for the region's major economies and diplomatic relationships, and we'll also hear Oliver's thoughts on the October presidential election in Brazil, which could be the next country to join the pink tide. Oliver, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Oliver, let's start with a big picture question. When we look at Latin America as a whole today, we see that in many countries there's really high hopes, but also really big challenges, right? How would you describe the kind of era that the region's in right now? So I think Latin America is facing a very challenging scenario, both internally and externally, particularly when we compare the situation to 20 years ago. You had geopolitical stability, commodity prices were rising, particularly in the late 2000s, U.S. interest rates were very low. So lots of investment came to the emerging markets uh, across Latin America. So in a way, I think now you have a, a sort of a perfect storm. The Ukraine war generates a lot of instability. You have other geopolitical tensions that may affect the global economy. You have still a long recovery from pandemic, which was devastating in the region. So I think that things will probably be much more turbulent than there were in the 2000s. You know, what was the hallmark of the first pink tied. I mean, it was political stability, economic stability, thanks to very beneficial circumstances. And I think that's clearly missing now. Oliver, you wrote a recent column for America's Quarterly explaining the differences that you see between this pink tide and the previous one. 
Can you talk about those in terms of these government's policies and priorities, aside from these external conditions that you just described? So I think that several differences between the crop of leaders now coming to power or they have just come to power in Latin America and those who governed 20 years ago. And I think the first issue is that today's leaders are clearly much more concerned about the environment, while 20 years ago, leaders like Chavez, Correa, you know, had a fairly tense relationship with environmentalists or, or didn't really have much of a concern about climate change, deforestation. That's quite different now. I think there's quite an understanding that, you know, these are now central issues of international politics. They're crucial when it comes to the relationship between Latin America and the United States, between Latin America and Europe. So leaders like Petro in Colombia, but also the president of Chile, for example, and also the leading candidate for the Brazilian presidential election, Lula, is now much more concerned about climate change. This clearly, I think, has an impact on the way they think about many other related issues like you know, poverty reduction, inequality. And I think that's a major difference. The second big difference, certainly, is that today's leaders are more concerned about issues like LGBT, women's rights, racism. So in that sense, they also are a reflection of a very different political debate, whereas leaders like Correa in Ecuador or Morales in Bolivia or Chavez in Venezuela were, you know, social conservatives. They were quite homophobic, actually. This is different now, but it's always important to keep in mind also is that, you know, there's many differences between today's leaders that make up the uh, second ping tide. So Castillo in Peru, for example, is still very much a social conservative, whereas Boric, for example, in Chile and in Petro are sort of genuine progressives. And that will also, you know, produce some interesting situations because they are about these specific issues they think in very different ways. And I think the third point is that whereas the leaders of the Pink Tide 20 years ago really emphasized regional cooperation, nowadays the importance of intra-regional trade, of intra-regional investment is no longer the same. So countries across the region are much, much more interested in trading with China, for example. And that, in a way, makes, you know, Latin American countries compete between each other. So I think we'll see less of an emphasis on regional debate and regional integration than was the case 20 years ago, because you had sort of massive Brazilian companies who were very keen on, you know, establishing a, a stronger presence in neighboring countries construction firms, for example, but now those are no longer there. So it would be an illusion to expect just because all leaders are central left or far left, there'll be lots of initiatives on the regional front. And I think that's a big difference. And perhaps the final issue is that I think the new pink tide will be much shorter because it's also really a very difficult time to govern. It, there's a very strong anti-incumbency sentiment across the region. And that was just not the case when the first group of leaders, left-wing leaders in Latin America emerged in the 2000s. Yes, and we'll get into some of these issues regarding trade and interregional cooperation in a minute. Among the things that some of these presidents have in common, Castillo in Peru, Boric in Chile, and now Petro, is that they've appointed finance ministers who are well-liked by markets and are closer to the ideological center than they themselves are. Why do you think that is, and what does it tell us? 
I think they have to be more pragmatic. Back in the 2000s, particularly when commodity prices rose, when the region seemed to withstand the global financial crisis, I mean, these were really amazing times in a way for Latin America because, you know, this was a, a crisis emerging in the United States. Europe was very affected and countries like Brazil were doing fine, basically. I mean, they recovered very quickly. So there's tremendous confidence. And for countries like Venezuela, for example, you know, there was almost too much money to spend in a way. And I think that in, in such a circumstance, the need to compromise perhaps was a bit more limited, even though you also had pragmatists governing back in the day. I mean, the Brazilian government, the Lula government, his terms before Dilma came to power was fairly pragmatic as well. But I think now there's a clear sense in countries like Chile and Colombia that the next years will be very, very difficult. And that unless these governments are able to reach out across the aisle, uh, able to build consensus, that the extreme polarization which has shaped the public debate in both countries and many other countries in the region will just not make it possible to govern. I mean, uh, these are leaders, I think, who are have a clear understanding of the need to come across as consensus builders and otherwise they won't be able to follow up on their you know very ambitious proposals so let's come back to the matter of cooperation and trade with so many leaders on the same page ideologically as we were saying before there's hope of greater economic integration within latin america and in fact our most recent special report at america's quarterly looked at this very possibility it was interesting to see that francia marquez colombia's new vice president recently visited brazil where she met with lula and she also went to chile argentina bolivia what do you think the new pink tide can bring in practice in terms of trade Well, I think economically speaking, there may be some progress in limiting the formidable obstacles that make regional trade so much more difficult. I think from an economic standpoint, we can hardly speak of a region because it's really so fractured in a way. I mean, particularly now over the past decade, you know, China is, is just so much more important. And when Bolsonaro during the campaign and after he became president started attacking You know, many neighboring countries uh, said we don't really need Mercosur. Then Brazil's economic elites weren't really that outraged because they were no longer as dependent on the region than they were uh, 20 years ago. I mean, when Lula came to power, uh, China was still not really that relevant to Latin America. It only became Brazil's largest trading partner in 2009. And 10 years after that, Brazil ceased to be Argentina's most important trading partner, which is now also China. So I think that you may have some modest progress there, but I think the overall trend is not towards greater trade integration. I think the overall trend perhaps is more represented by Uruguay. The government there decided to initiate negotiations for a bilateral trade agreement with China, basically violating, you know, one of the the key pillars of uh, Mercosur, which as a customs union is only supposed to negotiate together. Now, I do think that on many other issues, there's tremendous potential for cooperation, climate change, the fight against transnational crime, you know, preparing for the next pandemic, sharing best practices when it comes to education and healthcare. You know, there's really, I think, lots there to work on. And I think if, you know, the leaders of this new pink tide are able to advance in that direction, I think that's something 
it should be welcomed both by Latin American observers, but also by outsiders, because I think if the region can manage to think about its future more strategically, if we can have more debates about what should the region look like five or 10 years from now, I think that'd be a wonderful situation. I think it's it's something that has clearly been missing during the past decade because the region has been somewhat adrift and you know focused on short-term challenges. But it's certainly not something that is shared by all current governments. The Mexican government, for example, has not made an effort to move closer to South America. AMLO is very much a sort of an anti-globalist, not really interested in promoting cooperation. And you have big irritant, which is uh, Venezuela. You have actually additional irritants that you didn't have two decades ago. And in the situation in Nicaragua is really tragic. The situation in El Salvador is increasingly difficult. And that will also make you know, broader cooperation more tricky. I mean, Lula would be an ideal candidate, for example, if he won the election in October, to gather all Latin American leaders in Brazil uh, next year for a big summit to discuss the future of the region. But then, just like Biden recently went for the summit in Los Angeles, he will face a tricky question, should he invite people like Ortega or Maduro? So I think there's clearly a lot of opportunity but it's also not a shoe-in, particularly given that we now live in a much more China-centric world and much more limited potential for intra-regional trade. How about with other regions? How do you think this new cohort of leaders will affect the region's relationship with Europe, the United States, and China? Well, it's really interesting because when you ask uh, European diplomats, they're quite excited about where the region is going now. Several of them are very hopeful and think that it's possible to normalize relations with Brazil if Lula wins the election. They are very keen to engage on climate change. This is something you can hear in Washington also. There's the expectation that countries like Chile, like uh, Brazil, Colombia could be very productive interlocutors. Traditionally, there's been an understanding in Washington that left-wing governments are, are difficult partners, and certainly the relationship uh, between the United States and Colombia will change. But I also think that there's some potential here. I think that particularly in the area of, of climate change, for example, a Petro administration may actually be a useful partner. I think the Lula administration, if Lula wins, I think Brazil will certainly be a more constructive partner in the fight against uh, climate change and the fight against deforestation. So I think particularly for those, I, you know, in, in U.S. politics, I tend to think that there's a new generation of uh, sort of anti-American leaders emerging. I think that on some issues that may actually be the case. And nobody knows if, for example, Brazil would continue to support its succession process to the OECD. But, you know, on many other issues, I think human rights, the environment and other issues we've talked about, like LGBT and racism, women's rights. I think there's lots of opportunities for the United States to strengthen its cooperation with governments across the region in Latin America. But I think that on other issues, for Europe in particular, dealing with Lula will not be that easy. And he's actually, Lula has made that clear during the campaign that, you know, Latin America and Europe think very differently, for example, about the war in Ukraine. And clearly most Latin American countries want to remain neutral as so they don't want to get involved in this issue. The uh, Salsa Morin, the former Brazilian foreign minister, who's a uh, key advisor to Lula, has criticized Western sanctions against Russia. 
I think that if the tensions between the United States and China were to increase, perhaps, for example, in, in the context of uh, conflict in Taiwan, Latin America would certainly want to take a position on that, would want to protect its uh, relationships to China. And we've seen that now with Russia. I mean, and that's interestingly enough, one of the few areas of convergence between Bolsonaro and Lula, for example, is that both have been very careful not to antagonize Russia too much. And that has to do a bit with fertilizers, for example, which uh, Brazil buys from Russia and other Latin American countries buy from Russia. But it also has to do with a still predominant interpretation among Latin American political elites, which is that, you know, having a productive relationship or cordial ties to Russia and China helps Latin America negotiate its relationship to Washington. As we now head towards a world shaped by turbulence between the relationship between the United States and the West as a whole and Russia and, and China, I think that may also lead to some frustration in Berlin and Paris and London and in Washington because foreign policymakers, you know, want to strengthen ties to Latin America and also kind of think, well, you know, these are all democracies close to the West. You know, it would be natural for them to support the West vis-a-vis -vis the, you know, the war in, in Ukraine or a Taiwan crisis. And that will not be the case. And, and most leaders have made, made that very clear. Interestingly enough, the only leader of the new Ping Tide, who's really spoken out against Russia's invasion in Ukraine, who's also spoken out against the dictatorship of Venezuela, was Chile's President Boric. Uh, but I think he's clearly in the minority. I'd like to take a quick step back and look at some of the reasons for this new Ping Tide. Analysts have raised a few different hypotheses for what's behind this new trend, and I'd like to hear your opinion. Some have argued that the COVID pandemic made voters in many countries want a larger state to protect them and a larger economic safety net as well. Others argue that Latin American voters are unhappy with the economy and with the status quo. So they're voting against incumbents who in many cases were conservatives. What's your opinion on this? Well, I think it's a mix of several of them. After the, the emergence of center-right and right-wing leaders, in the 2010s, you have now a desire for change. So the past 14 elections in Latin America, either the president didn't manage to get reelected or the pro-incumbency candidate was punished. And I think that in a way, several left-wing leaders came to power largely because they, you know, opposed the government. And I think that some of that will continue. So when you look at Peru and Argentina, for example, you know, there's quite some possibility that, you know, both presidents will have to leave power in the next uh, years. In Argentina, uh, the government may not manage to win re-election. Castillo may not be able to finish his term. So you may have center-right or right-wing leader emerge in some of these countries. But there's clearly also something to say about, you know, the importance of poverty reduction, of increasing the role of the state after the pandemic. And it makes total sense that, you know, the left is better positioned to articulate proposals in this very difficult time now where the state clearly needs to take on new responsibilities and where that's in a way also a new global consensus. I mean, around the world, countries, not only in the United States, but in Europe too, are talking about industrial policy, 
about, you know, the state taking on a larger role in managing the economy and in a way that's sort of more suitable than for the left to react or to deal with that new scenario than somebody like uh, the minister of the economy in Brazil, Paulo Guedes, who basically wants to reduce the role of the state. So I think there's clearly some of that as well. I would say it's a mix of both, but the anti-incumbency sentiment will probably outlast the second pink tides. And that's why I think it will be much shorter than the first pink tide. Oliver, another trend that we've seen in the region, and I'm not referring to pink tide governments here, but the region as a whole, is a backsliding of democracy. How worried are you about this and which countries concern you the most? Well, in most countries, I think there's challenges to democracy. In several places, there's been an erosion of democracy. In, in Brazil, there's certainly lots of concern. In, in places like Peru, there's you know countries like uh, El Salvador, and I said Nicaragua and Venezuela are no longer democracies. And I think whenever you have a very challenging economic situation, there's always a window of opportunity for uh, populists with authoritarian tendencies. And that's aggravated, I think, by the kind of destructive polarization. So I think the the threat to democracies across Latin America continues as long as economic reform will not lead to reduced inequality, reduced levels of poverty. These are problems that inherently destabilize any democratic regime. And I think our best hope can be that the governments currently in power will make progress when it comes to these big ticket reforms, because unless progress can be made in that regard, it will always be sort of an interesting opportunity for people like Bolsonaro or Chavez or, you know, others who have seized on the powerful anti-establishment sentiment, on powerful frustration, the reversal of expectations in order to promote their political agenda. I'd like to turn to Brazil, which could be the next country to join the Pink Tide. The election is less than 60 days away. And polls show that Lula is still most likely to win, but Bolsonaro is closing his lead. Where do you see the race going? And after that, what do you think conditions for governing will be like? I think the race will be relatively close. And that's just because if you're an incumbent, you have capacity to increase spending, which is exactly what Bolsonaro is doing in a sort of classic populist way in order to increase support right before the election. That is inevitably going to have an impact on his approval ratings because people suddenly have money in their pockets. Some will, of course, understand that this is clearly sort of an electoral ploy, that that hasn't been really the hallmark of his administration. So it's going to be interesting to see how that helps Bolsonaro in part because it's difficult for the government to say, you know, vote for me because I've just given you all this money. And if Lula wins, he'll take it away. I mean, everybody in Brazil knows that if Lula gets elected, he'll simply continue making these payments, which, by the way, is a big problem, too, because the spending Bolsonaro has initiated now is totally unsustainable. So I think that the campaign is starting now. A lot could still happen But I would I think it's probably going to be a closer race than most expect at this stage, even though I still think Lula is the favorite. There's a, you have a formidable government structure that will help Bolsonaro. I think he's also on social media, perhaps a bit more sophisticated, has a better strategy. And I think Lula's problem in a way is that he's now, he will be forced to articulate what his proposals are. What does he intend to do? Because he's building such a wide tent, I mean, he needs 
support of people on the far left. He's seeking to attract moderate conservatives, economic elites. He's trying to make inroads even in the agribusiness. So it's very tricky for him to make everyone happy. And the best way to do that is to say very little. And he's been trying to do that. I mean, he's not even appointed an economic advisor yet. But I think pressure will also mount on Lula to say more clearly what he intends to do. And as he does that, he will inevitably alienate some people in this big coalition that he's seeking to build. I certainly expect things to go into the runoff. And then it really also depends on how fast Brazil's post-pandemic recovery will take. And of course, you know, the better Brazil's overall economic situation will be, the lower inflation will be, the better for Bolsonaro. I think that the election could be very contested. I think that based on what Bolsonaro has been saying, he's clearly, I think, preparing the situation for you know, if he loses to question the result, and that will certainly deepen polarization. I think as we've seen in the United States, there could be people using violence to protest against the result. And even if there's not genuine serious challenge by Bolsonaro, there is going to be a sizable amount of Brazilians, I would say tens of millions of Brazilians, who think the election was stolen. Now, because of social media, things are so fragmented. You have very powerful influence of fake news and people no longer participate in the same debate. So you have these sort of silo societies where people operate within echo chambers. Today, it would be almost impossible in Brazil to achieve the kinds of approval ratings that Lula had when he left office, which was sort of above 70%. It will be necessary to overcome this deep division somehow. But it's something that I think will take many years. I think if Bolsonaro were to head the opposition to Lula, it would certainly not be a constructive opposition, but probably one that would continuously seek to undermine the government and even question the legitimacy of the government. If Lula does win, what role do you see him playing in the region? Well, not to overestimate the role of Brazil. I mean, over the past 10 years, Brazil has really abdicated its leadership ambitions. That could certainly return. Lula is somebody who's very well connected in the region. And if Brazil is not actively participating in a regional debate, then it's very hard to have a regional debate. But I also think that it would be an illusion to expect Lula to become president and immediately start traveling like he did 20 years ago. Because back in the day, Brazil was a big success story. I mean, it was really easy in a way to represent Brazil. That's all impossible now because the country faces so many severe domestic challenges. So diplomatically speaking, he does have the strength, for example, to invite everyone for a big conference. But I think one should also not overestimate Brazil's capacity because, as I said, it's no longer as attractive to other countries because you no longer have a powerful Brazilian economy that full of companies eager to invest in its neighboring countries. It's uh, a much more fragile economic situation. So that will also, I think, make it more difficult for Brazil to embrace a leadership role in the region. I'd like to end by asking you, what countries in the region are you most optimistic about? This could be either from a democracy building or an economic perspective. What's keeping you hopeful about the region today? Well, that's such a difficult question because I think there are very few cases to be optimistic about in the short term. I think in the long term, the region continues to have, you know, tremendous economic potential. 
we don't need stellar governments. I think government's capable of, you know, getting the basics right, focusing on improving public services, on reducing inequality and articulating something like a new social contract. And, you know, some countries have made considerable progress. I think the situation in principle in Chile is a positive one, even though the country could be adrift if the population rejects the new constitution. I also think that this is a new opportunity now for governments to articulate their ideas. As long as it's possible to address the most urgent challenges, then I think there's lots of reason for optimism in the medium and long term. Let's hope for that. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Oliver. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Media.